Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant in Southern California. The Squad Room is about developing, optimizing, and maintaining the health and wellness of law enforcement around the world. Health and wellness mean a lot of things, and I explore it all here. How can we maintain and improve our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, our mindfulness? The show is my journey as a law enforcement officer trying to get healthier by evaluating my own life and by getting better at the things that I think are important. I reach out to experts to see what I can learn from them. I talk to other cops, doctors, military leaders, even meditation experts, anyone who can be a force multiplier in my fitness. Today's guest uh, was also our guest in episode 10, Dr. Kirk Parsley. Kirk uh, was a, he's a former Navy SEAL. He spent six years in the teams before going to medical, medical school while still in the Navy. And then he went back to the teams as the team physician. And I'm not going to go into his whole backstory because uh, I suggest you listen to episode 10, which you can get obviously on iTunes and at uh, thesquadroom.net forward slash episode 1010. And you can listen to his story there. And in that first episode, we really get into a lot of the minutiae of why sleep is important. And anybody listening to this who works shift schedules and is a law enforcement officer knows how little sleep we get, how poor the sleep that we do get is, and uh, the detrimental effects it has on our relationships, on our physical health, on our nutrition, all those things. So go back to episode 10 to listen uh, to more about what he has to say. But we'll jump into the episode here in just a minute. We have a long discussion with him about adrenal fatigue, metabolic syndrome, the blood uh, work you should be doing with your doctor, how to talk to your doctor about these things, and also this idea that even though he is a doctor, that um, he says that they're called healthcare practitioners or healthcare providers, but they're really disease care providers. They're not um, wellness providers. And he gives some good tips on some good people on who to follow. Uh, on who he endorses as being leaders in wellness, not just uh, in disease prevention. So check out the notes for this episode at thesquadroom.net, and you'll see all the show notes that we have and links to some of his work. I'll link to his TEDx talk again. That was uh, fantastic. And I'll link to some of the resources that he puts out there. Before we get to Dr. Parsley, I want to thank um, SB Tactical and the iCombat Active Shooter Training System, uh, for their support of this show. The iCombat Training System is an active shooter qualification and firearms qualification system, and it doesn't require any site prep or ammo costs, and it's completely mobile, which is really the most uh, amazing thing about it. It uh, functions much like uh, laser tag does. I forget the military word for it is, but but it sounds way cooler when you use the military slang for it, but essentially each officer is outfitted with gear and sensors that go over any uniform combination that you might have because it's fully adjustable. The uh, iCombat package is a replica AR-15 and a replica Glock pistol that both function um, much like real firearms. They're weighted, they have muzzle flash, and uh, gunshot sounds, and ammo accountability. And you can take this entire system and move it anywhere and put it into any building. We used a functioning office building when my department went through this training uh, about a year and a half, two years ago for the first time. It's got uh, all the benefits and none of the liabilities of uh, Sims training. Los Angeles PD, Boston SWAT, and many other agencies have been using it to do active shooter, especially active shooter on college campuses. I've been seeing a lot in their Instagram feed about the ability to take this onto a college campus and you don't have to shut the whole place down and you don't have to put up tarps and you don't have to have safe zones because everything about it is safe uh, and it's really applicable there. So check them out at sbtactical.com. All right, stick f- uh, around for uh, uh, the show. This is Dr. Kirk Parsley. Uh, you can find him on Twitter 
at docparsley, D-O-C, parsley, like the herb. And his website is docparsley.com. Again, everything is in the show notes, but here's Doc Parsley. Dr. Kirk Parsley, thanks for being back on the show. Uh, haven't told you this yet, but you're actually our first return guest. Um, All right. Yeah. First, it's something. So, uh, awards in the mail. Leader. We <laughs> yeah, should, we should, we should stop now then so I don't screw it up. Uh, I highly <laughs> doubt that you're going to do that uh, because last episode, the last episode you were on, episode 10, which was way back when, it was about a year ago. I was just getting this started. And uh, your episode remains one of the most popular episodes that I have, which tells me that um, this is an issue that is um, uh, universal and it's uh, obviously very applicable to my audience in law enforcement. And uh, more questions remain. So uh, on that podcast, you uh, offered to come back on at any point and go deeper into some other issues. So I took you up on that and you jumped at the chance to come back on. So thank you again for being here. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Um, you've uh, a lot's changed for you in the last year. You just finished Paleo FX down in Austin um, and uh, you got a new lo- website that we'll get into in a little bit. But I want to go to a question. It's a follow up question from a different guest, but something you've touched on a little bit uh, in episode 10, but in other stuff you've done. Uh, you touch on it quite a bit, but here I want to get into it. Uh, we had a cardiologist on, uh, a, f- a fellow Texan, Dr. John Scheinberg, who's also a lieutenant with Cedar Park Police right there in that area. And he was talking about metabolic syndrome in relation to fat, in relation to heart disease. Um, my follow-up question to you is, how does metab- what is metabolic syndrome in the sense of uh, its relationship to sleep, and how dangerous is that combination? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most accurate way to think of metabolic syndrome, although it's a li- it's a little bit more than this, um, the most sort of a- accurate gestalt for you know the lay audience would be to think of it as sort of pre diabetes. Um, so you run into some insulin sensitivity issues. Uh, those insulin sensitivity issues uh, have cascades of events, and one of those events is that you're going to maintain more body fat. Um, you're going to have more inflammation. That higher inflammation is going to increase your risk of forming uh, atherosclerotic plaques, or you know the, the bad stuff in your vessels that end up ripping off and clogging your arteries. Um, and the and um, any time you have insulin sensitivity issues, you run into wild blood glucose fluctuations and when you have chronic inflammation and wild blood glucose fluctuations you also tend to have aberrant adrenal hormones or stress hormones Um, the excess body fat also leads to sex hormone issues that i won't talk about uh, just yet unless you unless you want to bring that out specifically but um, the excess stress hormones then increase your resting heart rate they increase your blood pressure they decrease the perfusion to the frontal lobe of your brain which is kind of you know your decision making area your little simulator there um and you know all of those things just continue to cascade down the course of what you know any number of diseases um you know, there's kind of a big push, uh, or not a big push, but there's a there's kind of a movement to start calling. There, there, there are a lot of people who are, start, who are starting to call uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, type three diabetes. Um, so you're looking at neurological neurological decay, decay cardiovascular decay, um, and body composition decay. Right. So kind of all the bad stuff that, that leads to pretty much every disease known to man. So mm-hmm. you're just sick. I mean, you're just unwell. I mean, that's right. all there is to it. So it, it's a, sorry, go ahead. 
sorry, sorry about that phone ringing. Hopefully, you can edit that out. But uh, <laughs> I'm not that fancy, but it's all good. I didn't realize I had a phone in here. Um, <laughs> you're, you're in your house, right? <laughs> you didn't yeah. break into someone else's house. I, it's my office. Oh. If you saw this place, there's so much crap piled up. I honestly, I don't even know where it's at. I'm looking for it right now, but whatever. Um, right, it'll stop fine. ringing. Um, no, that that's good enough. Okay, so um, so insulin resistance, then that seems to come up a lot with every kind of different doctor that I speak with, and um, it all seems to relate back to um, carbohydrate, dietary carbohydrate intake. Is that right? And, and yeah, that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that that's a big factor of it. So um, insulin sensitivity issues happen for two reasons. Um, one is that you're eating a lot of carbohydrates. Um, and if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates and you have really high blood glucose, then your body, your pancreas secretes more insulin to try to get that, um, that glucose into the cells. And most people think of that as being the sole job of insulin. That's not the only job of, of insulin, but insulin is actually, you know, one of the major hormones. Um, and you know, the it, what it's really responsible for is what's called fuel partitioning. So it really decides what you're going to do with everything that you put in your body, and it decides how you're going to make fuel for everything that you do. Um, so every cell in your body is sensitive to insulin to some degree. Um, your brain, of course, can only use blood glucose, uh, so it doesn't really need insulin uh, receptors, but everywhere else in your body stocked with insulin receptors. So if you have high blood glucose all the time, uh, then you have tons of glucose receptors on all your cells and you have tons of insulin receptors. Um, and then when insulin starts coming around all the time and there's a ton of insulin around, then you start downregulating your receptors. And then when there's a ton of glucose all the time, you start downregulating those receptors. And now you're not as sensitive to either one of those things. So now it's harder for insulin to get the glucose into your cells, so your body starts making more insulin. Conversely, if you don't ever use your muscles, if you don't exercise very much, then they don't have a big demand, they don't have a big draw, so they don't have as many insulin receptors because they don't need as much energy. So that's why they tell you that diet and exercise. And it, I mean, exercise probably isn't the right word. It's just activity. Like you have to, you have to use your your meat suit for something other than carrying your brain around. Um, you know, you have you you know you have to use it or you lose it, right? So mm -hmm. that's uh, you know, if, if there were one, if if you said give me, if you said you you could you would give me one single lab uh, to judge somebody's health, I would say give me their fasting insulin. Fasting insulin is that different uh, than fasting um, glucose? I I can give you. Um. Yeah, you know, the most information off of that of any single lab. And I'm sorry, I don't know if the connection cut out. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hello. <laughs> that lose you. Okay, I can hear you now. You now got me. Moving again. All right. Yeah, I think we cut out for when I asked a follow up. So is is fasting insulin the same as fasting glucose? Um, no, but they're they're correlated, or they should be correlated. They can when they're discord when they're discordant or we call them just um then that that's an even worse song uh worse case scenario um the insulin is really you know just that we can measure directly that molecule how, how many of those molecules you have in your blood when we take your blood and at the same time we usually measure how much blood glucose you have because uh, 
we traditionally don't just pull a single lab, uh, but those two should be correlated. If you have a ton of insulin and a ton of blood glucose, um, it's probably type two diabetes. <laughs> and if, yeah. you know, the higher you, higher those two numbers go, the closer you are. And what you find is that people who have really low insulin numbers tend to have really low, or at least really well controlled blood glu- glucose. Because if they needed, uh, if they didn't have good blood glucose control, then they would be making more insulin. Uh, so. I want to get into the blood work question a little bit, a little bit deeper, but, but I want I want to make sure I ask this question so I don't forget. But what uh, what is a a blood glucose level that to you would really concern you? Um. Well, I mean that that's a that varies widely on you know the client that I'm working with. So, you know, if I have a if I have a 45 year old guy who's, you know, been working himself to death for the past 20 years, you know, trying to, you know, trading his, his health for wealth for 20 years. And now, you know, he's 40 pounds overweight and he comes to me and, uh, you know, he says, you know, I want to get back in shape. I want to be the same guy I was when I was a college athlete. Right. And, uh, and that's what they all say. Every single one of them. <laughs> I want to be just like I was in college when I was a D one, whatever. And I'm like, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's set some different expectations to start with. Maybe we'll get there one day. Um, but, uh, you know, if that guy came, if that guy comes in with a 120 or 125, like over 125 should be diabetic, should be diagnosed as diabetic. Um, uh, and we can talk about why I why I wouldn't call it diabetes, um, but uh, you know, f- for somebody like that, I would say uh, I would if he was much over one twenty five, I would I would be much more aggressive with his um, treatment. Um, but you know, for like a healthy athletic guy, I don't really like to see it over kind of ninety five ish. I mean, a really well a really well controlled blood glucose is somewhere. You know, somewhere between eighty and ninety-five, and if it's you know seventy-five, so much the better. Like I don't, I don't care if your insulin's low and your blood glucose is down there. Like you're just you're saving yourself from all sorts of disease. You know, one of the things that um, glucose does, and, and you can see this pattern in, in diabetics, right? The reason diabetics get is ulcers on their feet and end up getting you know pieces of their feet cut off and eventually even their legs cut off um, is because uh, blood glucose uh, is is uh, processed by an enzyme called glycosylase and that enzyme is found in a couple of places one it's found in red blood cells and another place it's found is in nerve tissue so what this really does is form like little crystals little crystals of glucose that are if you've ever done fiberglass work and, and you know insulation work or yeah, something like that, sure, you yeah, get yeah. that you get that in your fingers and you the, so you think of that that same process really going on in a red blood cell. Um, and so this red when you get down to the capillary levels, uh, red blood cells go through one by one, like they literally single file slide through a capillary. So if they have these sharp little shards of crystal on them, then they cut that wall and that wall inflames and hemorrhages and then that capillary closes off and you do that a couple of hundred times and then you lose blood flow to that area. Now you have the stagnant pool of blood and you have a lot of glucose in there. It's warm and bacteria grow. The reason they can't feel it <coughs> is because their nerves are being damaged by the same process, by the glycosylase and the, their nerve endings. So they can't feel that. Um, 
So that I mean that's a couple of bad couple of couple of the bad things going on with, with glucose right there. Not to mention the neurological decay that it does um, in your brain. So off topic now, but is that is that why people end up losing appendages or limbs uh, due to diabetes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they, they don't feel that infection. I always wondered why uh, how, what that connection was. And then that and then that infection just festers and festers and festers, and they don't rec- they don't even see it until it manifests itself on the skin, um, and it could be you know two inches deep in their foot, mm-hmm. and they're not going to know that it's there until until their skin starts showing showing signs Goodness. for it. And at that point, it's oftentimes too late because once you get um, necrosis of the bone, once it starts killing the bone, then you have to cut that out because you you'll never regain vascularization to that bone and fix it, and you're just going to always have problems. So, cut off a toe, then they cut off part of your foot, and then they just chop, 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 chop all the way up. You know. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I I took us down the rabbit hole a bit off topic here. So, uh, but to bring this back to um, glucose and sleep, what's a high carbohydrate diet or um, maybe that's not even the only factor, but how do those things then relate to poor sleep or poor, I'll say sleep nutrition uh, or sleep hygiene? Well, so, um, you know, sleep hygiene really refers to a couple of things that are getting your brain ready for bed. Um, One of those is the light saturation, which everybody talks about, blue light going into your eyes. The other one is slowing down your brain. Um, Another factor that's supposed to happen is that you're supposed to become, become progressively less aware of your environment. And if you aren't becoming less aware of your environment, if you're out at a bar, say you're becoming more aware of your environment, then your brain overrides that uh, light saturation shift that you worked so hard to achieve. Um, And that's largely uh, controlled by a neurotransmitter called GABA. Um, So, you know, that's somewhat of a separate issue, but... Um, when when the light saturation issue is taken into account, it really affects what's called the master clock or the suprachiasmatic nucleus. You've probably heard of that. Uh, the master clock, we'll just call it, it's much simpler. The SCN is a job security word. Um, just keep it confusing for everybody and <laughs> we'll stay in business. Um, the uh, So the master clock in the brain does lots of changes to neurotransmitters in your brain. And those neurotransmitters in your brain, especially like down in in your basal lizard brain, then dictate what hormones are going out into your body and how your body is reacting and decreases stress hormones and does all sorts of things. Um, So, you know, your diet is directly related to your ability to sleep and your diet is directly related to your hormones and vice versa. You can – I mean those things are – you know the two sides of uh, of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. Like you 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 can't separate those things out. So um, the where blood glucose comes in the most powerfully with sleep, if you just want to you know talk about something simplistic, and and the reason I'm kind of stuttering through this is because it's it's super complex, and I'm trying to make it sound right, sound full <laughs> and palatable. Sure, uh, but there's really about. 30 or 40 different things going on here. Um, but here, so here, here's a really simplistic way to approach this. Um, think about every other animal on this planet um, uses the sun um, to guide its sleep-wake cycles. And the only animal on this planet that intentionally sleep-deprives itself is humans. But every other animal on this planet will sleep-deprive themselves under one condition, that they're starving. When you're starving, 
your brain registers this really low blood glucose and you wake up earlier and you stay up later and that's to allow you to travel further and you know get more food um the other thing that it does um is it kind of shuts down again that prefrontal cortex that we were talking about the decision maker and makes you less risk averse because you need to try to eat novel things you need to you know go closer to humans or whatever it is to get more food to survive um so if you have poor insulin sensitivity people always think of that as meaning that you have really high blood glucose all the time which is by and large true, but what it really means is that you have wild shifts in your blood glucose. So if your blood glucose is going up and down in a very rapid manner, your brain perceives the absolute change. So it doesn't matter if you have a fasting blood glucose of 150, if it shoots down to 100, which would be high for me, um, your br- my brain's going to go, holy crap, we're starving, and it's going to wake me up. So people who uh, people who start low carbohydrate diets, uh, low carbohydrate, high fat, high protein, or or ketotic diet or something, oftentimes have problems sleeping for the first two to three months because they have they don't have good insulin sensitivity and they've taken away their carbohydrate supply, and so now they're getting this blood glucose crash when they're sleeping, and their brain's going, "Oh crap, you know, we need to wake up." And stress hormones are rising, and they're getting they have these really high AM stress uh, cortisol levels, and then they they get up early. So, the, I mean, that's the clearest association. Hopefully, I made sense there. Yeah. I felt like I kind of talked in a circle. But. No, no. So, I guess my follow-up to then is, so if someone's looking to, you know, change their fitness, change their nutrition, and they, they want to, and they're on, a, you know, kind of your standard American fair diet right now, and they want to investigate a low-carb uh, diet or something that's, even a Mediterranean diet or something that's less carbohydrate-centric, but they don't want to have that problem with sleeping, is there a way to do you taper or is there a supplement or how would you suggest they do that? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say, uh, you handle that by making sure that your, um, sleep hygiene and you, you know, sort of your lifestyle, the four pillars of your life, your, you know, your, you know, so we're talking about sleep, but then your nutrition, your exercise and your stress mitigation are all kind of perfect. Um, and then you have a really good sleep ritual that's super tight and you're very disciplined around that. Um, and then supplement if you need to. Um, you might need to supplement until the insulin receptors come back. You might need to take some sort of, uh, you know, sleep supplement. And of course, I have one I prefer. But you know, there, there's lots of good things out there. And you know, you take a take a sleep supplement. Um, you know, two three months or whatever. And uh, and even if you aren't getting great sleep, just know that it's it's the better decision to, in the long run is to improve your diet and your sleep will improve, um, especially. You know, what we find in standard American fare, uh, both men and women, is really low levels of testosterone. And uh, when we were doing research, when I was uh, still with the SEALs as as their physician, um, we documented a, a very, very strong correlation. Um, not exactly one-to-one, but it was like a 0.78 or 0.79 correlation of total testosterone and total time of sleep. So the lower your testosterone, the less you slept and the less you slept, the lower your testosterone. Um, so the, you know, those hormones repair when you start eating better and exercising better and sleeping more and all that stuff. So, and what you mentioned the last time you were on that, um, I'm going to screw this up, but that when your body starts to produce less testosterone, when you're sleeping, it actually increases estrogen. 
Is that and then your body is increasing more estrogen, so and the the two are related. So it's telling your brain, basically, well, we have this much estrogen in our body, so we must be making enough testosterone, and it kind of is this downward spiral. Is that am I getting that yeah. roughly right? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a re, there, there's sort of this switchboard in your brain, and we call it the hypothalamus, where you know it's sort of the master control center, and it's sensing what's what's going on, and it's giving feedback to the rest of the brain to you know secrete this neurotransmitter secrete these these pro hormones or these hormones or whatever um and uh you know the the big you know women are different women have aromatase in a lot of tissues um and aromatase is an enzyme that converts testosterone into estrogen but men the primary place we hold that and I'd have to go back and research that. It might be the only place, but um, the prime—I know—the primary place we have uh, aromatase is in our subcutaneous fat. So the fat we dislike when we see in the mirror that keeps us from having six-pack abs or whatever—that fat is converting testosterone into estrogen. Unfortunately, the switchboard determines our testosterone level by measuring our estrogen level because um, it should be a normal ratio, and so. Uh, you know, there's a few. There are testosterone receptors in the brain, but there's just nowhere near as many as there are estrogen receptors. So it's kind of the the primary determinant. You know, so if your brain says, "Well, we have a ton of estrogen, we must have a ton of testosterone," so then your brain doesn't secrete as much of the uh, hormone called luteinizing hormone that tells your testicles to make more testosterone. So now you produce even less testosterone, which then means you get fatter, and then more of your testosterone converts. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I I see it all the time. Guys come in with, you know, testosterone, you know, with the very low end of normal, and almost every time they're at the very low end of normal, or even slightly below normal range, uh, their estrogen is at the high end of normal or above the normal range. Um, and they've really expanded what the normal range is for men. Uh, even over the time I've been a doctor, they've actually doubled the quote unquote normal range. Um, so I, I think it should only be about 20 to 25 because that's kind of what, um, what the data showed 50 years ago. That was pretty normal. And now Mm -hmm. we have all these environmental toxins and I'm going to put us in a whole new tangent with that. Uh, but you know, the things like in the plastics, the BPAs and all that, those are, pseudoestrogens or zeoestrogens and they act like estrogen in our body and they cause these same kind of problems. So this was actually a listener question then about testosterone was what's the what's the relationship to sleep or why when when you have bad sleep how does that kick off a reduction of testosterone? Um well about 90 to 95 percent of all of the testosterone you make at night or you make in a 24-hour period you make during deep sleep so if you are getting poor sleep then your body isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing um there's this common misconception that if you know somebody's laying in bed and their eyes are closed and they're snoring and they don't seem aware of their environment then they're asleep um that's not necessarily true. If you look, we have to look at their brain waves and say, uh, oh, well, let me back up. They, they probably are asleep, but they may not be in the right stage of sleep. They may not have what we call normal sleep architecture, meaning that they aren't going from stage one down to two, down to three and four and staying there for a while and then coming back up and then going into a little REM and then going back down. So when we're in the stages three and four, we also call that slow wave sleep is when we're secreting 
the vast majority of testosterone that we're going to secrete. Um, and if you're not very active, it's probably a hundred percent of the testosterone that you're going to secrete. But the more active you are, and especially sort of anaerobic threshold training, uh, you'll secrete a little more uh, testosterone during the day, both through some uh, LH pulses and also some conversion of DHEA into testosterone. Do you find like my wife wears a Fitbit at bedtime to track her sleep? Do you find those to be relatively accurate or useful? Or I mean, what's a good way for people to know? Or, or is it just physiologically um, they know that they're getting good sleep or that that right level or stage of sleep? Yeah, they're not they're not super um, helpful for me as a physician, um, other than to just you know sort of encourage the patient to value their sleep and and to measure it. I mean, it, they're not perfect, but they're better than nothing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and as you know, as the old adage goes, if you don't measure it, you can't improve it. And right. so if people, you know, that our subjective experience of sleep is usually very inaccurate. So if you, you know, anytime you see sleep data where they surveyed people about how many hours they slept, you just throw it away. Like don't even read anything else. As soon as you read that, it's like, um, people are wildly off. Uh, we have, you know, people will come in to me all the time and say, I don't sleep at all. I lay in bed and I toss and turn and I toss and turn. I don't. I. I don't think I even sleep ten minutes and eight hour night. And then, of course, at this point in my career, I know that's pretty unlikely. But um, you know, it, it has been true a few times. But usually, you put those people in for a sleep study and they're sleeping six and a half, seven hours, and they just never feel asleep. They're always somewhat aware of their environment, and that's kind of one of the cues for being asleep. Um, and then they, you know, oftentimes they don't have normal sleep architecture, so they aren't getting the the restorative sort of love that you know that sleep is supposed to impart on you. And so, um, in, in one in one sense, they're right; they really aren't. You know, they aren't in the right stages of sleep, at least. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a related question. Then I read something uh, the other day um, on um, I forget. Well, I forget where exactly, but it was a it was a discussion about metabolism and eating uh, during, especially for shift workers, eating during the hours when you're supposed to be asleep, and how the body um, fights the the food that you're intaking at work. So obviously, if I'm working at from uh, six p.m. to six a.m. and I've got to eat at least twice within that, um, typically, um, what is my metabolism doing during those nighttime hours versus a, a normal person who was, you know, sun up to sunrise or sun, yeah. sun up to sunset. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that you're, you're putting me in a box for that one. That, that Sorry. that's, uh, that, that's pretty, that's a pretty complex uh, question, but, uh, it, it would depend on a couple of variables. Well, it, uh, if, if it was a single night of, you know, you say you you're usually running from sun up to sundown as your is your mo, and then you just pull one night shift, totally screwed, right? Your metabolism, your circadian ry- rhythm hasn't shifted at all, mm-hmm. and your body is, uh, you know, there's this common misconception that that circadian rhythm is all in your brain. It's in every cell of your body. Every single cell of your body has a biological clock. And it's performing one way when it believes the body's awake, and it's performing a different way when it, and it uh, perceives when it thinks the body's asleep or should be asleep. A great example of that is is renal function. One of the reasons that people with poor sleep have to get up so many times uh, during the night to go to the bathroom is because 
the your renal function, if you have good sleep architecture, if you're aligned with your circadian rhythm, your renal function goes down about 50% during sleep. So you aren't producing as much urine, so you don't have to get up and go to the bathroom. If you're in crappy sleep or you know getting unreal sleep because you used alcohol or sleep drugs or something and you're not really you're not truly sleeping it doesn't affect your adrenal hormones but every tissue in your body is behaving that way so um you know insulin sensitivity like we talked about one that's that's a big one um so what your what your body is doing with the food that you're eating on that shift is determined by your insulin sensitivity your insulin is fuel partitioning that and figuring out where to put it, what to do with it, use it right now for energy, store it with fat, put it inside of lean tissues, what are we going to do? And if you are, say, a routine shift worker and you've been on shift work, say if you're 12 hours out of phase, like that example, um, it would take you at least 12 days to shift your circadian rhythm as far as you would possibly be able to shift it. And that's still not going to be right on. So for three to four hours, probably of that 12 hours, you're going to be dealing with just what I talked about. Um, the rest of it, your body will be, it'll be more shifted and it'll be working sort of more in uh, synchronicity. But I mean, you guys have it the worst. I mean, the, I mean, cops are just totally screwed because you have your night shift and then you have your stuff, you know, randomly that you have to do during the day, right? Go to court or, you know, w- you know, whatever uh, obligations that they throw at you that you occasionally have to do. And, and, and uh, I mean, it, it's just, it's horrible. I mean, right. um, it, it, it's the worst, it's the worst scenario I can think of. <laughs> do you think? No, you're right. Because I'm my, I was going to ask you a follow up. Because so I work at, I work roughly four hours. If I'm on night shift, I'm, you know, working four out of seven days. I'm on, I'm, I'm working a night shift. But I have a family and young kids. So those other three days, I am a quote unquote normal person with normal hours. Mm, and I'm going back yeah. and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Not only just every four months when we rotate shifts, but within the week itself. And, uh, I'm, uh, yeah. I've done a lot to implement some of your recommendations from the last time we talked and, and I'm certainly improving and, and diagnosing the sleep apnea was a huge issue, but, uh, still struggle with that. Um, uh, and, and so that jumps to another topic and then you mentioned adrenal fatigue. I want to get to that too. Um, but I notice, uh, maybe being a little older, a little more mature possibly that at the end of a four month night shift, um, I, um, have some very not physiological, but also mental symptoms or, um, I don't want to say behaviors necessarily, but things that are consistent with what uh, a psychologist talks about as uh, a depressive state or depression and not yeah. in a full blown sense, but, um, I've, I've become very acutely aware of that. And what, what is that? Can you explain that? And, and I won't take up too much time with it, but I'm, I'm curious about it because I see it in me. And because I see it now, I'm a, at least I can manage it a little bit and be aware of it. But I see it in others too. Yeah. So an, an interesting thing about that is there's a uh, there's a book I'd highly recommend you reading called Chronotherapy, um, and I can get you the the author for the show notes if you have a hard time finding it. Um, I think it. I want to say it's out of Stanford. Might not be. It's either an Ivy League school or Stanford. Um, Pretty sure Stanford. Uh, they it, they they basically make this really convincing case that every uh, major depressive disorder or major depressive episode that they find in people is preceded by a period of insomnia. 
And then depending on whether you're a typical depressive or an atypical depressive, you'll either have more insomnia or excessive sleep, um, what we call hypersomnia. Um, the, you know, th this is actually kind of a good time to bring in the adrenal fatigue. Um, because it, it, it all it all ties together. So when you're on shift work, regardless of how much sleep you're getting, because you are outside of your circadian rhythm, and for you, you're totally hosed, right? You're doing four days. By the end of that four days, you've maybe shifted your circadian rhythm a maximum of four hours if everything went great. Now you take three days off of that. You go back three days at least, right? And now you're starting. So like the best you're ever getting is you know maybe four hours of a of a shift and then you're shifting back and shifting back and shifting forward. And we have these hormones in our, in our bodies that are designed to compensate for that essentially. Um, but you know, everybody thinks of cortisol as this evil hormone, get rid of cortisol, get rid of cortisol and you're dead, right? And like literally that's the, that, that's a definitive diagnosis for being dead is having a cortisol of zero. Um, cortisol along with epinephrine and norepinephrine and aldosterone that are, um, and DHEA that our, our adrenals are secreting, they have a purpose. And what that purpose is, is to keep us alert in proportion to our environment. So when you're sleep deprived, your brain isn't working all that great. Um, your body's energy levels are low because your testosterone level is low. Your thyroid level has been compromised. Um, your uh, you know, neurotransmitters have, have changed. Your testosterone is low. Your growth hormone is low. You're not very anabolic. You're hyperinflamed. So your body doesn't really feel like doing what it needs to do, especially for you. Like if you have to jump out of cars and chase bad guys or something, that's you know something your body isn't really willing to do at that point. And the way your body does it is ramping up the adrenal hormones, and that you know this is what causes the fight or flight that we talk, you know, that people, most of your audience has probably heard of, right? Sure. Um, this extreme, that sort of maximum adrenal level. So your so your adrenals try to compensate for your lack of sleep, but that leads to higher stress hormones, right? And higher stress hormones lead to a couple of things. Cortisol leads to chronically elevated blood glucose, which then leads to the whole insulin sensitivity issue that we've talked about. Also, cortisol impairs your prefrontal cortex, your decision maker, like we talked about, uh, affects the perfusion, the blood flow to that, and the glucose utilization of that area of your brain. Cortisol also makes you hypersensitive to epinephrine and norepinephrine, makes you more sensitive to the hormones that you're, that the other stress hormones you're secreting. Um, and stress probably isn't the great, greatest word, but I'm just using that because that's what they're called. Um, and that leads to these little anxiety pings that people who are chronically sleep deprived for some reason just like all of a sudden feel super anxious about nothing and they can't explain why. Um, that's just an adrenal rush. So um, the documentation of the correlation between depression and, and insomnia is very clear that it, the correlation exists. I don't think anybody has worked out exactly what the mechanism is. But we know that sleep deprivation alters neurotransmitters, it, and our brain is essentially just this you know big bag of hormones. I mean, neurotransmitters are really just kind of hormones for cells, uh, for brain cells. Um, and if you start shifting those, you start shifting the way the brain behaves, and that leads to depression, and it leads to anxiety, and it leads to mood mood regulation issues. So getting super angry or getting super you know offended or super depressed, like you know, in a flash, um, is very common. And I saw that with the seals all the time. And I see it with 
you know, the uber wealthy serial entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, and I see it with law enforcement and first responders, firefighters, like everybody, everybody who lives in that, and, you know, doctors just as bad. I mean, you think about, um, you know, ER doctors, they, they have horrible shifts. Like they're, yeah. and you know, uh, I've, I've tried to help people <laughs> and, and, you know, their, their staff is so resistant to changing their schedule. And I'm like this, I'm like, you're worse than anybody else in the whole country. And your doctors, you're supposed to, you know, be the gatekeepers of health, which I, 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 I would argue that doctors really aren't. Um, and, and that kind of speaks to one of the questions that we said we were going to talk about, but yeah. And, it kind of puts my head in my hands and, and I, I I have, when I have a conversation like this and I think oh, I'm, we're, we're screwed. I mean, there's nothing I can do about like, I told the story on a different podcast. Maybe it was even the one you were on, but um, I'm, I'm going through these problems and some nurse was like, well, why can't you just work day shift? It's like, well, someone's got to work the night shift. And it just so happens with my department that we all rotate, you know, the, Cops, ha- we have to work at night. We have to you work. You can't convince the criminals to quit right. working at night. Yeah, right? yeah. They don't work. <laughs> like, a- look, if you guys would just quit committing crimes at right. night. Working we 9 to 5, Monday through Friday would be fantastic for everybody. But, I mean, we got to work at night. We got to work in bad conditions. We uh, are are predisposed to, like, nutrition issues that are a challenge. Um, you know, even if we're doing our best with sleep, it's still not the sleep we need. Um, yeah. How... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, there's a there's a whole. I mean, but I see how that rabbit hole happens, and then how you end up with um, bad decision making uh, yep. in in crisis. How you end up with excessive force uh, mm-hmm. when you snap. Uh, how you end up with low morale department wide because everyone is taxed. How you end up with uh, the domestic average age violence, of a, divorce, domestic violence, yep. divorce, suicide, yep. all those issues that we deal with. You know, the average age of a uh, heart attack for a cop is forty nine. Yeah. Uh, versus, I think sixty-seven for the standard citizenry. It, it just it blows my yeah, mind you, how much guys, all of this. You guys is. live like fourteen years, fourteen to sixteen years less than the average. Yeah. 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 Scary, right? I mean, it's so that's scary. It just and you know, it just so happens that after we finish here today, I'm going into my general to uh, sit down after some advanced blood work and kind of try and figure some of this out. So some of this is on my mind, but it's like, how do how do we how do we manage this? How do we even begin to deal with this? Um, and so maybe that's my next question is, you know, you mentioned before something like 82 sleep disorders that are out there and the general, your general physician is only going to know a small handful. Yeah. How, uh, what recommendations do you have for people to go out and investigate these things on their own? What questions should they be, they be asking their doctor? And I, I found, and, and this is no fault of my doctors, but I had the same experience you talked about was that, I had to be a bit of my own advocate and I had to do some research and I had to ask for a sleep study. Um, even though he was, um, somewhat reluctant to do it, he, he offered. And of course I end up with severe sleep apnea. Um, what are some of the things you would recommend people have their conversation with their doctor? Well, I'd, I'd first start out with the caveat that, um, their doctor very it's very unlikely that their doctor knows anything about sleep um it's just not something that's taught i mean there are there are physicians obviously that specialize in sleep and they know a hell of a lot about sleep and they know a hell of a lot more than i do about sleep disease um and you know those are the guys you need to go to with sleep disease and disorders um but what by and large what we're talking about here is lifestyle right and your 
your physician can't make two plus two not equal four. No, I mean, no matter how smart your physician is, shift work is bad for you physiologically. We know that. Um, the World Health Organization has recognized it as a type two carcinogen. We know it, you know, and then highly suspicious for correlations with heart attack, stroke, and every pretty much every disease we know of diabetes, obesity, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, I mean, really what I would say that it, the key, if I were in your shoes and I didn't know what I know and I want to go talk to my physician about it, I would talk to my physician about the things that I've been telling you that you, you know, you've heard this on podcast or you've read this or, you know, whatever the most convincing sort of, uh, thing is for you um i think as long as you're passionate and convinced about it you'll compel your doctor to to do right by you but i would just measure all of these things that we've been talking about right i would get the most complete but blood panel that you can um i would focus very heavily on measuring my sleep in some fashion um so that i have some idea of no of knowing how much sleep I'm getting and I'm honest with myself about how much sleep I'm getting. I would make sure that my, I know what my insulin sensitivity looks like, uh, my fasting blood glucose, what my inflammatory markers look like, what my sex hormones look like, all, all of my anabolic hormones, my thyroid, my cortisol, all, all of the stress hormones, all of the sex hormones, um, all of the inflammatory markers. Um, and you know, from there, the, all you know, and and again, I hate to chase numbers. That's not really the idea. It's 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 the gestalt, right? So you look at it and you say, this overall looks good. This overall looks like crap. You know, it looks like this process is going on. Let's see what we can do. I'm hyper inflamed. I'm going to change the way I work out, right? I'm going to do like a less taxing, less inflammatory workout. Um, I'm going to make sure I take my fish oil. Maybe I'm going to take glucosamine chondroitin. You know, I'm going to take gluten out of my diet or refined carbohydrates or, you know, whatever. You know, you're going to control your, you know, you're going to control your inflammatory cascades that way. Um, you know, anything to do with your sac, your anabolic hormones being low back you cut out right there real quick uh, i think you just said anything more with sleep your... is the answer uh but also you know, high intensity interval training helps as well um you cut out right there uh, real quick probably the key oh sorry i wanted yeah, to i wanted out. to make sure i understand <laughs> i understand you yeah. said sex hormones and... okay you've you, you've been cutting out when you're telling me i'm cutting out so i haven't heard what you said oh i'm sorry <laughs> Bad connection for a second. Um, you, I think you said uh, the last bit there was the sex hormones uh, or stress hormones, one of the two, and then high intensity interval training. Can you pair that up? Right, real quick? right. Uh, yeah. So the the stress hormones are are going to need to be controlled through stress uh, reduction of stress, and I I highly recommend something that's uh, quantifiable, like a heart rate variability training device. Or, um, you know, the Omega Wave. I really like it. Measures sympathetic and parasympathetic. We can go down that rabbit hole if you want. Um, but I'd make sure that my stress hormones were in line. I'd make sure that my insulin sensitivity was good, and that's primarily nutrition, but it's also sleep. But when you see low sex hormones or low anabolic hormones. The only, you know, there's only a couple of solutions for that. Uh, one, and the primary solution for that is to get more sleep. Um, you can, of course, 
increase anabolic hormones by doing high intensity interval training. Um, but those also lead to inflammation and lead to breakdown. And if you're getting poor sleep and you're already hurting, then that's counterproductive to do it that way. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't like when I work with the client, when I, when I take a client on as a new client, I don't make any diagnoses until we've optimized their sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress control. So just keep focusing on those things and get them as good as they can possibly be before you start trying to chase down any type of diagnoses. And you can use those labs to sort of let you know how successful you are. And most, I mean, most people have some idea of how, of how good their lifestyle choices are, you know, Um, and they can educate themselves further on it. But of course, all the sleep hygiene stuff that we talked about, you know, supplements to make sure that you're getting the best quality of sleep and that you're replacing sort of the, you know, the, the usual suspects that would, that might go deficient when you're chronically sleep deprived or you have chaotic sleep sort of in your, your situation. Um, but you know, you know, you just need to know that doctors, doctors are called healthcare providers and I think it's a misnomer. Um, they're disease care providers. So when you have a disease, you want to see a doctor because they know how to diagnose this and they know how to treat it. When you want to be healthy, you don't want to see a doctor. I mean, doctors know they don't know much about health. We we aren't trained that much. I mean, I mean, do, some doctors do, but they're these are doctors who've taught themselves that you know or they've you know they've sought out that education on their own. So unless you have an exceptional doctor, uh, like a, you know a general you know general practitioner that's been trained in you know typical Western fashion doesn't know anything about sleep and doesn't know very much about nutrition and doesn't know much about exercise and doesn't know much about stress mitigation. So kind of on your own. Kind of on your own. Better off working with some sort of life, yeah, you know, some sort of life coach or you know, really smart trainer, you know, who kind of has all the all the pieces of the puzzle and you know, um, highly and highly trained trainer, you know, or a life coach. I think is more it's a better solution than a physician. And then once you've optimized all those areas, and you keep chasing those lab markers, um, if the you know if there's something that just stays aberrant, and you're like, look, this is the best lifestyle I can possibly live, um, yeah, then that's when you see your doctor, and he helps you manage the um, the bridge between reality and ideal. I mean, we can't; most of us can't live an ideal life, right? Uh, I don't know if there's such a thing anymore, right? Um, yeah. Real quick, you said is it the device is called a mega wave? I don't. We don't oh, need to get into oh, what it is, but oh. Omega. Omega. Omega wave. And then uh, you brought up a good question that I hadn't even thought to ask, but, um, you know, we we do kind of historically tend to look to doctors as having the the holy grail of information on any topic and related. But, um, you know, there's a lot, there's, I think, a reluctance sometimes to seek out information that doesn't have a, an MD next to the name. Um, but that's, oh. I've found to be somewhat unfortunate, but we all have to go through this process of vetting who some of these people are and some of the, the, the legitimacy. I mean, I know that you have a close of a uh, relationship with Rob Wolf, for example, whose yep. book was the first book I read on the paleo diet and the whys and all that. And after reading that went strict paleo for a, a bit of time and had great blood markers as a result. But who are some of those other people? Rob Wolf obviously is one, but who are other people that you would direct people to if they are seeking out some of this information to be proactive um, without going to their their doctor? Man, there's there's a ton of good guys out there, um, and I I mean 
I'm I'm really bad at holding names in my head, but I mean Chris Kresser uh, is is a phenomenal guy. He's a he's a sort of an Eastern trained uh, physician, so he's you know the Eastern version of MD and mm-hmm. acupuncturist, but just really smart on nutrition, really smart on lifestyle. Uh, I mean, even even guys you know who don't really necessarily have a medical background. I mean, like Mark Sisson puts out really great advice. Uh, you know, John Wellborn puts out great advice. I mean, just you just kind of, I would you know, I'd say go to somebody's site like Raw, where you go to you know my website, and I have a thing on there called Community, and there's probably 30 people listed in there that I consider sort of thought leaders in either in any of those areas: sleep, nutrition, exercise, or stress mitigation. And some of those people on there are also like the life coaches kind of people that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, not that you need to employ them as a life coach because you, you know, you have access to their podcast and their blogs and all that. And you can, you know, do as much of this stuff on your own as possible because that's what a life coach is going to encourage you to do anyways. Is, yeah. Uh, you know, they're just going to kind of give you some accountability behind it, but I would, I would get started and get a knowledge base first. And if you feel like you need help, you know, hire, hire one of those people. And if you feel like you're really you know, badly off, um, and you don't, you know, don't really want to chase the traditional medicine uh, route. You know, anything sort of done the integrative or functional medicine path is is probably more aligned with your your audience that would be listening to this podcast. Would be my guess. Um, yeah, and this is an open. It, this is a, tends to be a very open audience. They want. I mean, they're if they're listening to me fifty three minutes in talking about <laughs> sleep, nutrition, right. and all that health, they want to learn these things. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll get to the your website, and um, I want to talk about that too because you just relaunched that. One, uh, the biggest question I got though from listeners, I asked I asked my email list what they wanted me to ask you about, and overwhelmingly it was uh, supplements. And 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 maybe it's because we tend to not address the big issue and we want to supplement it with an easier fix. But I talk on this show about how magnesium, vitamin D. And those two together have worked fantastic for me. And then playing with 5-HTP or GABA, one of the two, uh, at night seems to have a very synergistic effect on being able to sleep well. But a question I got a lot was uh, if you could touch on melatonin and long-term use and if there's any negatives to long-term use. Um, And, of course, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, what other options do you see that are out there? Yeah, so I mean, you you just about gave away my formula right there with uh, <laughs> with, with what you're taking, uh, and and there's good reason for that. Obviously, uh, it's not any magic I came up with. It's, it's well, just, it's something uh, I started taking after we talked last time. Yeah, it's, yeah. lo and yeah. behold, it works. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah the the whole idea of supplements is like like I've said a couple of times in the show there there's reality and there's ideals like here's what I want to do here's what I can actually do we supplement or mitigate in that gap right um so naps would be mitigating for the sleep and then you know taking some sort of sleep supplement would you know be supplementing to fill that to improve that gap um but the melatonin question is really common uh i would say for the first Five years that I was, um, you know, considered a sleep expert and did interviews and lectures and all that stuff. And back in those days, um, I was one of the people saying that taking exogenous, or would, which just means outside in, taking melatonin from the outside and putting it inside your body, um, would decrease your own melatonin production. Um, and I still think that's true. 
However, it has not borne out in any research that I've seen. Uh, and they have chased it. Their problem is they're chasing it with salivary markers, which may not be a very good indicator of what's in the brain. And that's where we need the melatonin. We need melatonin elsewhere, but that's sort of the, the big kickoff for the, for the orchestra in the brain that, to deal with sleep. Um, so I think it's probably true that taking too much melatonin will decrease your own melatonin production. If it's not true, it is literally the only hormone in the body that is that way. Uh, every other hormone, if I give you that hormone, your body will quit making as much of that hormone. However, what we have established to be true is that, uh, and there's lots of research to support this, is that taking um, melatonin from the outside in in larger doses than your brain would ordinarily make leads to a downregulation of receptors. So this is a lot like that insulin thing we talked about at the beginning, right? Uh, it you know it can be it, you know it, it can be the binder or the receptor itself that that's causing the issue. And so if you have an excess of melatonin around all the, you know, for a sustained amount of time, then your body starts taking away melatonin receptors. Now, if you ever quit taking melatonin, your body's not as sensitive to melatonin and your brain doesn't make enough melatonin because you don't have enough receptors to receive it. So now you have to wait until all your melatonin receptors come back. And from the time the sun goes down until the time the sun comes up, you know, if if you lived in a hunter gatherer sort of perfect society non electric uh, world, your brain is only going to produce about six micrograms of melatonin. Um, so if you're taking a five milligram melatonin pill, you've gone way over what your body would make. Um, you know now you're not going to absorb 100 percent of it. So if you're taking a one milligram tablet and you're breaking that in half and you absorb maybe half of that. You you know you're not doing uh, nearly as badly, but um, uh, that that's that's my take on on the melatonin. Um, and then everything that you talked about, the vitamin D three, the magnesium, the tryptophan, um, those are all in the path of making melatonin. Um, those are all the constituent parts. Uh, there's one more that starts that whole thing, tryptophan, which is we all know associated with turkey and taking right. naps and thanksgiving is you know the tryptophan coma because of that pathway because there's an excess of tryptophan and, and you've put all your blood into your gut and you know there's some other things going on there and you feel like sleeping um and then you know the other the other sort of major game that goes on when we we're talking earlier about slowing down your brain uh decreasing your awareness of your environment that's gaba's job um the problem is it's hard to get gaba across and into the brain, um, but taking GABA, taking regular GABA still helps because you have about a tenth of your brain uh, in your gut, right? I mean, I, I didn't say that right, but you know, you have about one tenth of the number of neurons in your gut as you do in your brain. Gotcha. So you, you know, you have this gut brain, which is also affecting your sleep and your stress control and adrenal control and all that other stuff. And some GABA does get into the brain, so it is helpful. Uh, and my product has something called phenol GABA in it, which is GABA that has, you know has this little phenol ring attached to it that allows it to get into the brain, and then it works like GABA as opposed to sleep drugs that are GABA analogs that are meant to work better than GABA, um, and they those are the ones that are just really dissociative. They just kind of turn your brain off um, and then there's all sorts of problems with that behaviorally but um, it also affects your sleep architecture and you don't get normal sleep you get 
you know, drugged sleep, which mm-hmm. looks a lot like unconsciousness and not like sleep. I don't want that. So no. if I remember vaguely or uh, just my lack of biology background, vit- uh, melatonin is a hormone, and that's why your body starts to produce less and less if you're putting it into yourself, right? And right. vitamin D is also a hormone, right? Yeah. So yeah. It, it was just it was misnamed. Are we at risk of doing the same thing with vitamin D as we are with melatonin by supplementing with it and then taking too much or what's that level of I use you, you know that, that no, a reasonable yeah, so person the, the difference was the difference with the vitamin D3 uh, is that we don't have a vitamin D3 gland right like there's there's no endocrine organ that's secreting vitamin D3 we're making that in our skin with exposure to the sun uh, almost nobody gets the sun that we sort of evolved to get um, on a daily basis uh, but what you find, you know, when they study people's uh, blood work, they put them out in the sun, they study people's uh, vitamin D conversion, and what it's converting vitamin D2, uh, which you can get from your diet and your body can make, um, into vitamin D3, um, which can only be made, like I said, through the sun exposure to your skin. Um, if you go outside and get sunlight to half your body, say like you take your shirt off and you go outside for 20 minutes, you make about 15,000 IUs of vitamin D3. Um, you know, the USRDA I think is 400 or 800 IUs or something like that. So if you're working inside all day and, you know, not getting a lot of sun, 800 is nothing. I mean, right. Your 15,000 is about what your body uses. Interestingly enough, if you stay out in the sun for four or five hours, that 15,000 doesn't keep climbing up. It kind of shuts off and self-regulates and you maybe will produce, you know, 18, 20,000 tops. Um, could you, because once you kind of hit, there's some sort of sensor, uh, uh, of your body, there's some sort of recognition of that level. Um, that the other thing about vitamin D3 is that it's stored in our fat. Um, so it's a fat soluble, hormone that is stored in our body fat intended to be stored in our body fat so it doesn't have to be in your circulation so it's not going to your brain and telling your brain to make less vitamin d3 but your brain's really not even involved in it um and your brain is usually the regulating factor for down down regulating okay down regulating how much you make of any hormone so your brain's not involved in the production of vitamin d3 and it's stored in your fat is kind of the short the short answer Gotcha. Okay. No, I appreciate that. And uh, I know we're running out of time. I had one more uh, question and then we'll get to your new launch of your new website and all that if you have a second. Um, This was a good one. This one also came in. So uh, another podcaster, fellow podcaster, probably the only thing we have in common uh, is Jocko Willink. Jocko! (laughs) Who you are good friends with. At least I take that based on the uh, friendly rivalry the two of you uh, banter back and forth with on, on Twitter. Um, yeah. Jocko's podcast, the Jocko podcast, and his book Extreme Ownership have been. Uh, are, are, I know that I know for a fact that many many people who listen to the show, listen to Jocko's show, have read that book. I have recommended that book to many people. I've given it to a couple people. Anyway, that's who that's who he is. Obviously, uh, you two know, know each other from the seals, but I don't, I don't know if there's another way to ask how you know each other or how you came to be friends, but also. He's famous for posting that photo on Instagram every morning of his watch at like 4.30 uh, wake yeah. up, right? And yeah, I think this morning it was even 3.30. Yeah, just kind of <laughs> insane. And um, there's definitely a dynamic of, you know, a, a le- or a certain kind of cop that wants to be out there, a certain kind of person, a serial entrepreneur, like you mentioned, who, who just wants to be out, out, out hustling and, you know, sleep less, you know, kind of is the is the argument. You need to make more time, so sleep less. 
I see sometimes this discussion or some of these people post this stuff up on, on Twitter and they're aspirational to be like, uh, to Jocko and, and kind of point to you and say, well, if he can't, if he can do it, why can't I do it? And you, what's, what's your response to, to that, um, sort of desire to go, 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 but also, um, maybe some of that, um, uh, you know, what, I guess, what would you say to a fan of his that wants to be like that, that, that grinder, wake up, no sleep kind of guy? Well, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, um, it's probably unlikely that Jocko is a genetic outlier for, uh, his need for sleep. Uh, Jocko is just an ex- an extraordinarily, uh, probably pathologically determined guy. Um, and he's just, he's just a super, super intense, uh, very driven, very ambitious kind of dude. And he's, you know, if you, if you, you know, listen to Jocko's message, um, you know, Jocko is an absolutist and he knows he's an absolutist and he doesn't try to tell anybody that they're going to be healthier by sleeping sure. this much. Yeah, um, he never, he, he never claims that. Tries to, <laughs> he, he's trying to encourage them to be ambitious. Um, and I, I think if you, and, and Jocko is my jujitsu instructor as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I, you know, we've, we've known well before his book came out and way, way, well before his podcast came out and well before he sort of, uh, achieved this, this, uh, his level of fame that he, that he's, uh, you know, boomed out of in the last six months or so. Um, we've known that we fit, we philosophically disagree on this. Um, but what I can, all I can tell you is that if you want to go after that, um, and sometimes you have to go extreme to achieve what you want, right? Like I didn't get through SEAL training by being balanced. I didn't get through medical school by being balanced, right? <laughs> right. I went extreme and I paid the price for it. And that's the lesson of life. Like you can do anything as long as you're willing to pay the price. So, I mean, if you want to follow the, the Jocko mantra and then like see how much you can take, just realize that the way you're going to know how much you can take is when you break yourself and then there's going to be some recovery from that. Um, you know, Jocko's an amazingly resilient guy to be able to do what he does. Um, I think he's probably unusually resilient and that, um, most people aren't going to be able to sustain that for very long. And definitely, I mean, Jocko is my age. Uh, most guys are, and not uh, withstand what what Jocko does to himself. Um, you know, maybe maybe Jocko's going to shatter one day. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's going to prove me wrong. But um, uh, I can't say that in the research when we bring people into the labs and we you know we sleep adapt to people and we control their sleep and then we test them and then we take away a little bit of sleep and then we test them in any metric. Nobody does better with less sleep at anything. And every hour of sleep that you give up, you lose about an hour and 15 minutes of productivity. So it's a negative sum gain. Uh, and you will, you know, like we talked about, you know, it, it's it's almost certainly the reason that um, cops die 14 years earlier. Uh, uh, because we know that people who take sleep drugs chronically happen to die 14 years earlier on average as well. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, no, it, it most certainly isn't, and I'm I'm I've learned that, and I, I get it reinforced every time I hit record for the podcast. So, last time we talked, you uh, 
had uh, you'd already launched the Sleep Cocktail, but you've relaunched it now. You've relaunched your website, um, as you mentioned. It's docparsley.com. Parsley, like uh, like the herb, P A R S L E Y. You you now call it the Sleep Remedy, right? And it's a it's a it's a, I mean I could tell it, but it's more interesting to hear it from you real quickly. What uh, what is the Sleep Remedy? And um, you already talked about why. Uh, why you developed it, I guess, and I don't want to rehash that for everyone. They can go to episode ten to listen to. You know, like the seals kept coming to you and asking for this, but um, it's available on your website now. And um, mm. you talked a little bit about the GABA that was in it. What other things um, have you developed with it over the last year since we talked? Uh, so the formulation of, of the relaunch is exactly the same. Um, I am testing some other uh, some other formulations to. Um, to try to control a few other neurotransmitters involved. Um, but, uh, you know, all the formulation is, is exactly what we talked about. It's, it's the production pathway of melatonin and it's a, it's a light dusting of melatonin. Um, and it's that form of GABA that can cross into your brain. So it's tryptophan, 5-hydroxytryptophan, vitamin D3, magnesium, very small dose of melatonin and, um, a little bit of this pH GABA. And it initi- it helps you initiate sleep. Everything in there kind of washes out of your brain pretty pretty quickly, though. Um, washes out of your system pretty quickly. So uh, it doesn't necessarily maintain sleep. If you have, uh, if you, ha- I mean, if if sleep, if stress is you know waking you up four hours after you go to sleep, it's probably still going to happen when you take this. And those people, I tell, you know, don't take it until you wake up. <laughs> You know, right. um, and then you can help re- you can re- help reinitiate the cascade. But you know, there's no sort of physiological tricks or hacks in it or anything. It's just meant to give your brain everything that you need to start that cascade. Um, if your sleep hygiene isn't ideal, if you you know can't sort of get rid of all the light in your eyes and slow your brain down, you know, three hours before bed, um, and then you know, have sort of the perfect sleep environment and all that, which a lot of people can't, um, then it, you know, it's a good, uh, a good supplement to kind of make sure that you initiate sleep quicker and it's normal, you know, sort of quality sleep and hopefully, you know, result in you getting more sleep. And, you know, lots of people do, um, not that the product's actually doing it, but the product's helping them initiate good sleep architecture. So the quality of their sleep is higher. So they end up sleeping longer, mm-hmm. but it's not the product really making them sleep longer because it's, it's just not around anymore. It doesn't last that long. And the only reason we changed, we changed the name is, uh, cocktail had this connotation to a lot of people that it had alcohol in it um and it was blocked by a ton of firewalls um corporate corporate municipalities and dod doj and all that stuff would block it because of the word cocktail yeah that makes sense yeah we changed it to sleep remedy (laughs) so you just relaunched the website um i'll link to both uh sleep remedy and your and your your website there's a lot of there's some good articles up there uh that go a little deeper in depth. Um, I like your thought leadership in your, in your community there. What's, uh, what's next for you? What do you have on the horizon? Uh, well, I'm negotiating a book deal right now, uh, for the book that's, yeah, been in the yeah, we're cutting out again, but <laughs> book deal, I heard that. I'd say it's 90% written, 80, 90% written, uh, something like that, depending upon the publisher. Um, I hope to, uh, oh, 
Uh, you want me to reset the book? Anyways, working, negotiating a book deal. Um, <laughs> am I cutting out again? No, I think I was, but we're caught up to each other, I think. Okay. Um, and I will, in the next three months or so, kind of uh, pull myself away from the sleep supplement day-to-day. It's been running for about a year now, and um, I know enough about how it runs to be to be able to hire somebody to do the all the crap that I don't need to be doing, which is about 90% of what right. I do for the company. I, I'm not the right guy to be doing it. Um, so I'll bring somebody in, kind of take all that off my plate and then I'll do, you know, more lectures, more information products, more corporate consulting and, you know, professional consulting and that, all that type of stuff and, uh, take on a few more clients. I, I, you know, I've, I've taken my uh, client list down to a pretty small number, uh, right now just because I've, I've been so busy with everything else. So yeah, and sure, go back to doing what I know how to do and, and and quit trying to run a supplement company, which is not what I know how to do. Right. Yeah, that sounds challenging. So DocParsley.com, where can people find you on uh, Twitter and Instagram or anywhere else on social media that they can follow yeah. your thoughts? Uh, you can hit that off my website. I think I'm at DocParsley on both of those. I'll, uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, I think on Instagram you're actually just at KirkParsley. And then Twitter, your Doc Parsley. Could be, yeah. I'm, 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 I suck with. Tell you what, I'll figure it out for you, and then I'll post it in the show notes. Okay, and I'll have it on there. Uh, Doc, you, thanks. You saved me. There you go. Just feign a little helplessness there, and I get everything. <laughs> I do that with my wife all the time. I pretend I don't know how to do something, and then she can do it for me. I don't know. I just I don't get know how to take the trash out. <laughs> and honey, if you're listening to this, that's not true. I'm just saying that just to connect with the doc I, no. anyway uh, doc thanks for being uh, back on the show really appreciate your support of law enforcement you've been very vocal in that uh, you've been very vocal in your desire to help um, appreciate the fact that you offered to came back, come back on and you came back on um, and uh, you're uh, what 27 episodes since your first uh, appearance so appreciate you coming back and, and being true to that um, I love following your stuff on Twitter you put out a lot of good information. You have a good discussion with people going back and forth. So, again, the show notes, but at Doc Parsley, D-O-C, Parsley, um, people should follow that and, and see your thought process and learn a lot more about you. And then also check out those uh, episodes you've done with Rob Wolf on his podcast. I'll link to those as well because I think there's a whole ton of information in there that goes way deep on stuff that I'm not even uh, able to articulate. So. Best of luck to you yeah. with the book. Uh, I think it's been uh, a lot of fun, and thank you for all of these uh, these topics. It's been this fantastic. Yeah, man, it's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, anyone anyone silly enough to give me a soapbox to stand on, I'll I'll go on their show and uh, and and scream my message out there. So, well, my soapbox has an open invitation to come back yet again because, uh, like I say, you're a very popular guest, and people are always hitting me up with questions, and I always have questions because this is not something I'm going to solve until I'm probably retired. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, rest assured, the more I, the more I've learned about sleep, the more of an idiot I feel like I, you know, I feel like I know less and less the more I learn. So, um, I don't I don't think we'll figure it out anytime soon, but we can keep getting closer. All right, thanks for listening to this episode with Doc Parsley. To follow us on Instagram, it's at the Squad Room, and same for Twitter. Uh, you can also text the Squad Room, all one word, to 44222, and you can get signed up for our mailing list right from your phone. 
And as always, if you think uh, that the show is valuable or you think that the content that we're putting out there is uh, worthy, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and consider a five-star review. Uh, that really helps us spread the word of the show and get our message out to more and more law enforcement officers who need to hear these kinds of things and need to understand things like why you need to care about your glucose and why you need to care about your insulin and all those factors that just don't seem to be all related. But as we learn through the now 30-plus episodes of the show, it absolutely is. It all is related. Also, of course, want to make sure that we thank SB Tactical and the iCombat Active Shooter Training System for their support of the show. Check them out at sbtactical.com and check out the iCombat Pro in-home individual officer program. So uh, give us a review on iTunes if you would. You can always check us out at thesquadroom.net. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot us an email, squadroompodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, please take care of each other and stay safe.